0: the journey so today's talk is called unmasking purim the mystical dimension of purim can everyone see my screen all right now i because i'm sharing my screen i can't see you guys so well so please call out if you have any questions now i want to begin by finding out what you guys know about purim so can you guys please call out the customs that you are familiar with about Purim? Just unmute and call it out. Hamantaschen. Great. Eating hamantaschen. We see some hamantaschen on the screen here. What else? Dressing up. Costume. Shlalachmano Sending gifts to your friends. Anyone else? Heyman, what about him? (laughs) Okay, something to do with Heyman. We're going to talk about that also. Actually, we're going to talk a lot about that. What else? What? Getting drunk! Okay, you guys basically hit most of it on the head. Anything I missed? Anything else? Let's go through it, one by one. So there's a custom to wear masks on Purim. To wear masks, traditionally masks nowadays, costumes. It's kind of like, think about it like, Kind of like the Jewish Halloween, except has nothing to do with Halloween. Okay, my kids pointed out that on Halloween, everyone gets dressed up and knocks on your door and asks you to give them stuff. So on Purim, we dress up and we knock on people's doors and we give them stuff. It's the opposite of Halloween, right? We're not asking, we're not taking, we're giving. Okay, so we wear masks. What else do we do? We eat hamantashen. Hamantashen is a pretty old custom. I believe it goes all the way back. But historically speaking, these particular types of cookies is probably a few hundred years old. Um, back to the 1600s, we have records of hamantashen. And there's a lot of different explanations for why we eat hamantashen. I'm going to teach you what I believe to be the mystical explanation for hamantashen. Then we also read from the Book of Esther, the scroll of Esther known as Megillah Esther. And there's a mitzvah to listen to the Megillah from beginning to end at night. Purim night, that's um, that's this year, Wednesday night. And then again, Purim day, that's Thursday in the daytime. And when we read the Megillah, whenever you hear the name Haman, or Haman, we make noise. And traditionally, this is done with something called a grogger. A grogger, boo. Have you ever seen one of those? We're going to talk about the mystical explanation of that thingy also. Noisemaker. And then there is a mitzvah on Thursday afternoon going into the evening time to have a massive feast. And it is a wine feast. And the, in addition to eating and enjoying yourself and saying words of Torah and singing, there is a mitzvah to get ridiculously smashed. And we're going to talk about the meaning of that as well. And finally... There's a mitzvah called Mishloach Manos, which is to give a gift um, uh, containing two items of food, so like um, a bottle of grape juice and a hamantashin, and um, to one of one of your friends. That's called Mishloach Manos, and people a lot of times uh, go overboard with these and they send them out uh, a lot of them, but it's a nice thing and it it really does increase good feelings amongst people in the community. But more importantly than the giving of food is to actually give money to people who are actually poor, not your friends. I mean, if you have poor friends, that's even better. But to give money to two poor people, enough money for them to be able to afford their meal for the day. So um, it's very important to give charity on this day. And there's actually a statement in the Talmud that anyone who sticks out their hand and asks for something, you have to give them. You can't say no. So, it's a big day of charity. So, let's go through each of these things one by one. So, what do you guys believe to be the holiest day of the year in Judaism? What's the holiest day of the year? What? Purim? Yom Kippur! Of course, everyone, besides Avi... Wait, wait, Avi, hold on, hold on. Just patience, Avi. Just wait, just wait. We're getting there. Um, <laughs> so anyone you ask, unless they came to this class or whichever class Avi went to, will tell you that Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar. Now, some might argue it's actually Shabbos, but really in sim- simple a simple, explanation, it's Yom Kippur. But the Zohar, the Basically, primary text of Kabbalah says something very different. Because Yom Kippurim, does anyone know what the letter K, the letter cuff in Hebrew means? You put a letter kuf at the beginning of the word, it actually means like. So what does Yom Kippurim actually mean? The day that's like purim. So the Zohar says that if Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, is the day that's like Purim, so actually Purim is even greater than Yom Kippur. So according to Kabbalah, Purim is actually the holiest day of the year. Avi, is that what you learned? All right. So we got to understand this, guys, because on Yom Kippur, we fast all day. We spend the whole day praying. We dress all in white. It's like a really spiritual day. And on Yom Kippur, what do we do? Get totally blackout drunk smashed. So how could it be that on the holiest day of the year, we get blackout drunk? What is going on? So the final custom on Purim that we need to understand is what's with this drinking? As it says in the Talmud, every person is obligated to get spiced on Purim. It's the actual quote from the Talmud. Until they don't know the difference between blessed is Mordechai, that's the good guy in the story, and cursed is Haman, the bad guy. So that's really drunk, to not know the difference between the, two, the good guy and the bad guy, right? Like that's like not knowing the difference between Putin and Zelensky, but like even worse, right? How could you not know the difference, right? It's like it's a big deal. So we got to understand this and we got to get it in a deep way. So we're going to put on our Kabbalistic hats and we're going to go deep into it. So you guys ready to go into Purim and really understand it from the depths. Okay, let's do this. So the last point about what's special about Purim is the Talmud says. That in the Messianic era, when the Messiah comes, all the Jewish holidays are going to basically be insignificant. Except for one. One holiday we will be celebrating forever. At least in the same capacity as we do today. Do you know which one? Well, now you can take a guess, right? Purim. Somehow Purim is the the quintessential Jewish holiday that's, which will always be celebrated. What's so special about Purim? And the Talmud even says that Purim is even greater than the day that we received the Torah. So it's like so much going on. What's What does it mean? So what does Purim mean? Does anyone know what Purim means? The word Purim. Any Persians here? Any Farsi speakers? So Purim is actually a Persian word that means a lottery. The word Purim means a lottery. What's the significance of that? So what is the source? What is the what is the what is the root? What is the root um, trait or quality that is the driving force of a lottery? What makes a lottery work? Luck, chance, and as we're going to see, that's really the theme of Purim. So if we open up. The Megillah, the Purim story, which again, hold, be patient because we're gonna, you're gonna do that in a few minutes with Rabbi Pollock. You're gonna go through the whole story and the whole historical timeline. But if we look through the Purim story, what you're going to find is a whole bunch of events that took place over a period of several years. And there's something major missing from these events. Does anyone know the character? the Jewish character who does not appear not even once in the entire book of Esther, the entire Purim story. Anyone? So for those of you who does appear, that's the king. Now just, to, just to run through the story really quick, superficially, uh, there's a story of a king, and uh, his name is Achashverosh, and he uh, kills his wife, and her name is Vashti. He ends up finding a new wife. Her name is Esther. She's a Jew- nice Jewish girl. Meanwhile, this guy Haman is like the voice viceroy of Persia, and he decides that he wants to kill all the Jews because he doesn't like uh, this guy Mordechai, who's the head of the Jewish community in Shushan, which is the capital of the Persian Empire, and through a whole series of crazy twists and turns, Esther, this Jewish girl, ends up becoming the queen, and she ends up supplicating before her husband and, and saving the entire Jewish people. And in the end, Haman, the bad guy, gets hung on the gallows that he erected to hang Mordechai, the Jew. So it's an amazing turnaround. It's, like, it's an amazing story. There's something major missing from the story. Who do you expect to to hear about in any Jewish story that you read? God. The name God appears how many times in the story of Purim in the Megillah? A total of zero times. There is no mention of God in the Purim story. The entire story has zero miracles. There's nothing miraculous about the story. The whole story is just a bunch of random coincidences that end up good. Hence the word Purim, which means a lottery. So in Jewish history, we have a whole bunch of miracles. We're familiar with them. Ten plagues, splitting of the sea, death of the firstborn, giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, miraculous bread falling from heaven, armies that are just smitten in the middle of the night, And yet this story has none of that. This is a story about nature, just natural events, so to speak, that come together in perfect symphony. So why is this so significant? The story takes place with this bad guy we mentioned, Haman. And the Talmud tells us that Haman, actually the Megillah tells us that Haman is a descendant of a nation which is described in to the Torah as the arch enemy of the Jewish people. Anyone ever hear about this nation? The nation is called Amalek. And we actually read a Torah portion this Shabbos commemorating the attack of Amalek. They were the first nation to attack the Jewish people when we came out of Egypt. And the sources explain that Amalek is the archenemy, the antithesis of the Jewish people. They stand for the exact opposite for what we stand for. So if we can understand what they stand for, then we can understand what we stand for, because it's the opposite. So what does Amalek stand for? Now, in fact, Jewish sources point out that Amalek, the nation of Amalek, is not necessarily anymore an ethnicity but it's really an ideology. And that these characters pop out throughout history. The characters who embody the spirit of Amalek, the legacy of Amalek, are the anti-Semites who have throughout time wanted to destroy the Jewish people, even self-destruction. They would even be willing to self-destruct as long as they take the Jews down with them. An example of Amalek the number one example of a Malik in recent history is who? Anyone? Nazis. Hitler. Hitler embodies the ideology of a Malik. right? And at the end of the war, Hitler could have invested all of his energy To fighting the russians and the and the americans but instead he continued to transport over a million hungarian jews to auschwitz to their death in the last few hours of the war the last dispatch of hitler before he killed himself was the eternal war against the jews should should continue forever that was his primary drive was to destroy the jews it made no sense it was completely irrational. That's Amalek. So what does Amalek stand for? That they hate the Jewish people so much. So the Talmud teaches us two things about Amalek. First of all, Amalek is the numerical value of the word doubt in Hebrew, safek. Amalek wants us to doubt our beliefs as Jews. But there's more than that. What's their number one thing? We see from the actual language the Torah describes it. When Amalek attacks the Jewish people, is the word that I have in yellow, happened. They happened upon us. And the word in Hebrew is the word mikra, which means literally coincidence. Amalek's prime message, their modus operandi, is that everything in life is a Wink-a-dink. Everything is a coincidence. Everything is chance. Everything is random. Amalik's message is that there is no master plan. So, by that token, what is the Jewish message? What do the Jewish people stand for? That everything is meaningful. Every moment of your life is with a purpose. Everything that happens to you is part of a symphony. There's nothing random. So the Talmud asks a very interesting question. The Talmud asks the question, where is Haman alluded to in the Torah? Now this is an interesting question because Haman did not live until Thousands of years after the Torah was written. And yet we believe that Kabbalistically the Torah is a blueprint for creation for all of history. That all all of history is alluded to in the Torah. So where is Haman alluded to in the Torah? And the Talmud asks answers from the following verse. If everyone could just read along. Can I have a volunteer who would actually like to read this verse out loud? Or would you like me to? I don't mind if you want me to. All right. This is a story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And they just finished eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the verse says that after they eat, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and she gave it to her husband, and they both ate. And their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. And they sowed fig leaves and they covered themselves. And then suddenly they heard the voice of God walking in the garden. And the man and his wife hid before the Lord God in the midst of the trees of the garden. And God called to man and he said, where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I'm naked, so I hid. And God said to him, Who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the word, Have you eaten from the tree? Hamin ha'ats is actually the word Haman. So the Talmud says this is an allusion to Haman. Did you eat from the tree? And now I want to turn to you guys and ask you, look at this story. Look at this verse. Look at this interaction between Adam and God and tell me what is absolutely ridiculously absurd about this story. Yeah, God knew he ate from the tree. So why is God saying, what did you do? Did you eat from the tree? God knew that he ate from the tree. Excellent. What else? Let's continue. What else is ridiculous about it? Think about Adam's response to God. Think about God's response to Adam. What does Adam do when he hears God coming? Hides. Why is that ridiculous? Can't hide from God. God is omniscient, God is everywhere. Can't hide from God. And now, here's the clincher. What's even more ridiculous than that? We have Adam hiding from God. We have God asking Adam, Did you eat from the tree? What's the most ridiculous thing that happens now? I'll give you a hint. It's yellow. Okay. Who who told you to eat? But I, I want I want something that's like really, really ironic. And it's all along the lines. You're 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 very close. Adam hears God coming. Adam hides. What's ridiculous about God's response? Where are you? God says, where are you? What do you mean? God, like, you know where he is. So what the sources explain is that Adam makes the first mistake. He thinks he can hide from God. But you know what God does? God says, you want to hide from me? I'm going to play that game with you. I'm going to pretend like I can't see you. This is the cosmic story of history. This is the root of Haman in history because we live in a world where God is hidden. We don't see God in our life. And therefore, it's possible for doubt to exist. It's possible for us to shrug our shoulders and say, maybe there is no God. That's the root of Haman. That's the source of the confusion and illusion that God is hiding in this world. The Talmud then asks the next question Where is Esther alluded to in the Torah? And the Talmud answers from a verse in Deuteronomy, Anochi Haster Aster Panai Bayom Hahu, on that day I will surely hide my face the word esther is related to the word hidden in hebrew and once again we have this similar idea that god is telling us there's going to be a time in history where you're not going to see me i'm going to be so hidden from you you're not going to know that i exist in fact the Baal Shem tov the founder of the hasidic movement says that it's a double expression haster aster, it means i will certainly hide my face but says the Baal Shem tov it's a double expression of hiding the first expression of hiding is when we don't see god the second expression of hiding is when we don't even know that we're missing anything we don't even realize that god's not in our life it's not even an option for us we don't think that god's really a real thing it doesn't even it's not even that he's hiding it's that he doesn't exist so we live in a world where god is almost completely hidden i say almost because he's not completely hidden we have the ability to choose to see god you see if god was completely visible if it was obvious that there was a god what would we lose Yoni, do you... Yeah? No confusion. If we didn't have any confusion, what would we not have also? We wouldn't have faith. And Yoni, can you you just say what you said? Again? It's free choice. When everything is clear, You lose the ability to choose. And one of the foundational principles of Judaism is that we have free will. We get to choose how to respond. But when everything is clear as day, when you know that fire is hot, you really have a choice to burn yourself or not? If it was obvious there was a God, we would lose our ability to choose, and therefore God is almost completely hidden. So it's much easier to see God on when there's open miracles you know on yom kippur a day of pure spirituality it's easy to see it it's easy to easy to feel it it's much harder to see god in the world of nature where the idea of a miracle is where is is a temporary suspension of the laws of nature it's a supernatural reality and we believe in miracles has anyone ever had a miracle in their life a supernatural miracle Probably not so many, maybe some of you have had something anyone have anything crazy happen to you? I've had some crazy things happen to me in my life, but I can guarantee that everyone here has had a natural miracle where you're you know you're just looking for something and then someone calls you at that very moment and they have that very thing that you need. you ever have that, or like when you're thinking about someone and then you bump into them later that day, someone you haven't seen in a long time, or you know like. You need money, and suddenly someone gives you a present, or you get a job. We've all had moments like that. I'll give you an example of a miracle. A miracle is an open miracle is if you imagine you're driving your bike down like a, a narrow, like one-way dirt road along a mountain pass, and suddenly you turn the corner, you come face to face with a 16-wheeler, and there's nowhere to go but down. And you literally go off the cliff and you're falling in midair. And like you said, goodbye, your life is over. And suddenly you just stop falling in midair. And then you just like float down and land on your feet, the bottom of the cliff. That would be an open miracle. I guarantee if that happened to you, you would be religious for at least a week. Right. But what's a hidden miracle? A hidden miracle example of a hidden miracle is where same scenario, you're riding your bike down the dirt pass, you turn the corner, you face the the 16-wheeler, you go off the cliff, and then as you're falling, happens to be at that very moment, there's a mattress truck driving by with tons of mattresses on the back of the truck, and you land exactly on the mattresses and you just bounce right off and land on your feet. What are you going to say after that happens? You could say, oh, my gosh, I see the light. Or you could shrug your shoulders and say, wow, what a coincidence. That's a hidden miracle. It's your choice. I want to tell you two stories, true stories of hidden miracles that I heard of. One of them was uh, there was a great rabbi. In Israel, who was is riding in a taxi, and the taxi turns the Rabbi, and the taxi says, Rabbi, I saw a miracle. Now, if anyone's ever been in a taxi cab in Israel, the taxi drivers are like the most spiritual people you're ever going to meet in your life. Taxi driver says, I was after the army, I was in Israel. Um, a bunch of my Israeli friends went to South America. We were touring through the jungles of the Amazon, and one night we are camping in the middle of the Amazon, in the middle of the night, We heard a blood-curdling scream. We ran out of our tents to find our buddy in the middle of the campground with a 30-foot boa constrictor wrapped around his neck. We had no clue what to do. So we said, that's it. Like, you know, we don't want to do anything because the snake's just going to squeeze harder. So we told our friends, say Shema. Say the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance. Say the Jewish prayer that we say before passing away. So my friend said the Shema. And a second later, the snake just unraveled itself and crawled off into the jungle. Taxi driver said, It was a miracle. The next day, my friend was on the plane to Israel. He went to yeshiva. He became a rabbi. He's completely religious now. And the rabbi said to the taxi driver, Well, what about you? What about you? Why didn't you become religious? And the taxi driver said, No, no, rabbi, you didn't understand me. It was my friend's neck, not mine. That's a natural miracle a hidden miracle and it's very easy for you to shrug your shoulders and say it wasn't my <laughs> didn't happen to me i just saw it. it didn't happen to me i don't have to change my life i'll give you another crazy example also public transportation a friend of mine was on the bus in israel and the bus driver turned to him and the bus driver said i'm from belarus from the town of minsk sorry the town of pinsk very Hasidic town. He said, I was one of the first Jews in my town. He said, I grew up Hasidic. And I was one of the first Jews in my town to stop keeping Shabbat. Bus driver says. He says, one, every Friday night, everyone went to synagogue. Me and my friend used to go to the cemetery and smoke cigarettes. That was our custom every Friday night. He said, one Friday night, we show up at the synagogue, at the cemetery. and We forgot our matches. So." My friend said, you know what? There's a candle burning on the grave of the great Hasidic master who's buried here, Rav Aaron of Karlin, one of the greatest Hasidic masters who lived in, in Belarus. He said, let's go light our cigarettes from the candle that's burning on his grave. And the bus driver said, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Smoking on Shabbat, that's one thing. But lighting our cigarette from the grave of the rabbi, I'm not doing it. So his friend said, I'm going to do it. Watch me. And he goes to the grave. He lights his cigarette. Puts the cigarette to the candle and drops dead on the spot. Bus driver, tell, by the way, a bunch of people I know had this bus driver. He tells the story to everyone. So my friend said to him, what did you do? What did you do after that happened? He said, what do you mean what did I do? He said, what did you do like the next Shabbat? He said, oh, I got another friend to smoke with. That's a hidden miracle. We can shrug our shoulders and say, eh, coincidence. So why do we drink on Purim? What's the message of Purim? The Purim story, God is completely hidden. And yet he's behind the scenes from beginning to end. This is the story of human history. History, it's his story. God is orchestrating the entire human history. By the way, I set a class earlier this last week on the miracles of Jewish history. Please check it out on my podcast. It's called The Gavriel Horan Show on uh, Spotify and all those other podcast places. Uh, la- I posted it in the Rage Happenings. It's it's amazing when you listen to Jewish history. The One of the French kings, King Louis the XVII, whatever, 14th or 17th, said to Pascal, the famous Louis Pascal, the famous um, philosopher and mathematician, what's a proof of God's existence? And Pascal responded, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews. If you study Jewish history, you see the hidden hand of God. But the reality is, is that he's hidden right now in our life, in our very life, in every experience that we've ever had. We might've looked like, it looked like trauma. It looked like a challenge. It looked like hardships. It looked like darkness. And yet there's a master plan. We just have to seek through that darkness to uncover the message. So let's go through some of the customs of Purim quickly and see if we can understand the meaning. Why do we eat Hamantaschen on Purim? What's the message of Hamantaschen? There are actually a couple of holidays where we eat something very similar to Hamantaschen. There's another thing that we eat on Purim also it's called kreplach does anyone know what kreplach is it's the Yiddish way for saying pimeni. dumplings what does hamantaschen and dumplings have in common filling the good stuff is hidden underneath the surface now the cookies that we ate on Purim might not always have looked like this And they might not always have been triangle shaped. And probably, if you learned in Hebrew school that Haman wore a triangle hat, he probably didn't wear a triangle hat. But the message of Hamantaschen is that it's a cookie with something good hidden inside. That's the message of Purim. If things look bad in your life, you have to look deeper. You have to look deeper. There's goodness hidden within the challenges hidden within the darkness. Sometimes you got to stick around. Sometimes we're not seeing the big picture. Sometimes we have to wait a few decades to figure out what the message is, but there's always good hidden underneath. And that's why we wear masks on Purim because the whole theme of Purim is that God is hiding. But it goes even deeper because who started this whole cosmic game of hide and seek? Adam. Remember, Adam was the first one to hide. The message of Purim is that we're the ones wearing the mask. We're the ones hiding from God. And really, we're the ones hiding from ourselves. Because where is God? Inside us. Inside us, inside our soul. When we turn off the noise, when we stop the distractions, when we turn off our phone, when we stop the music, when we sit for a few minutes alone, we can't avoid the reality that we're disconnected from ourselves. Society has mastered the art of drowning out your true self. That's why uh, whenever I lead a birthright trip, we spend like a de- time doing a desert meditation. I don't know if ever, any of you guys did that on birthright. For those of you who went on birthright, whenever we get back together, we sit in the desert for about eight minutes. We get back together and everyone is bawling. My mom, my boyfriend, like my people are bawling. Why? We didn't tell them anything. We didn't give them any prompts. The answer is because when you're alone with yourself, you can't avoid the reality that you're disconnected from your true self. That's why we wear masks on Purim, to remind us that we're hiding. We're hiding from God. And ultimately, we're hiding from ourselves. So why do we wave the grogger? So one of the great Hasidic masters points out that Hanukkah and Purim are opposite holidays. Hanukkah, it's open miracles. The candles burn for eight days. There's this miraculous war against the Greeks, small army against the mighty. On Purim, God's completely hidden. So on Hanukkah, we also spin something. What do we spin on Hanukkah? Spin the spin the dreidel so but they're opposite spinnings on Hanukkah the hand comes from above and spins the dreidel on Purim the hand comes from below and spins the grager the hand coming from above is God's hand coming into this world making an open miracle on Purim God's hand comes from below underneath the scenes behind the backdrop of history through the natural coincidences of life and spins the world and finally we read from the book of esther the word megillah in hebrew means actually it means a scroll but it actually means to reveal and the word esther we learn comes from the word hidden the book of esther literally means revealing the hidden revealing the hidden hand of god who's literally hidden in the world and that's why we drink on Purim the rest of the world drinks to lose themselves to run away from their problems on Purim we drink to find ourselves to to let out a little bit of the inhibitions that are keeping us from being our true self but ultimately the drinking on Purim is supposed to be until you don't know the difference between Cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. To recognize that we live in a world of good and bad, a world of evil, and there is evil in this world. But ultimately, we believe that everything is good. In the end, there is a master plan. Even the greatest evil, the Haman's of history, the Hitler's of history, the Putin's of history, are all puppets in a masterpiece theater we are literally experiencing a symphony we just have to wait around and see how good will come out in the end so we should all be blessed this Purim, to experience a little deeper the reality that all there is is god and all there is is good and we can start By looking within ourselves and finding the good that's hidden inside ourselves, and looking at our lives and looking at the challenges and the trials, tribulations, and traumas of our life, and see the hidden message that this is all for our good. This is all for our growth. Somehow it's going to be good in the end. Begin by looking at the messages, looking at the hidden messages of the coincidences of your life, and begin to see the master plan revealing itself. Thank you guys for joining us today and uh, have an amazing, amazing forum. Any questions on that? Do we have time for 30 seconds of questions or feel free to reach out?